All right, so uh, this is a little different. Um, I'm not used to preaching like this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, like Jonathan said, uh, out here um, on Wednesday night before service, some of y'all uh, saw me sitting out here. Um, the, yeah, my, my toe got in a fight with one of the fence posts. And in case you were wondering, those fence, to- fence posts don't move. Um, it's, it's still in the same place and pointed in the same direction. The same can't be said about my big toe. Um, so you know that you broke something pretty good whenever uh, they look at your x-rays and they go, oh, man. That's, that's not usually what you want to hear. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to uh, make it work this morning. So um, uh, go, go ahead and grab a Bible and go to Ephesians chapter 6. So um, we're uh, actually going to still continue with our, with our Ephesians study uh, for uh, Grad Sunday. Because um, I think that, that God uh, 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 planned out and wanted us to be in this passage um, uh, for, for Grad Sunday. Because it's very applicable for... Um, for where our grads are at and moving from uh, from one season into the next, and it's very applicable for the rest of us as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, Pastor Jonathan touched on the, the purpose of Grad Sunday a minute ago. Um, you know, it's it's not just a, another graduation ceremony, right? Um, that it's it's uh, not as much of a graduation service as it is a commissioning service. That we're we're sending out uh, these graduates, we're sending them out into adulthood, challenging them and encouraging them to continue pursuing Christ and to advance the gospel in whatever avenue uh, God takes them. And so um, that, that kind of service, a commissioning service, it fits in with, with our, our mission and our values as, as a church, right? Because we're, we're commissioning our graduates to continue following Christ and engaging everyday people with the gospel to be fully uh, restored and satisfied in Him. And if, if you think about our values, right, if you remember one of our, one of our values as a church is committed family partnership, Right, and and Pastor Jonathan mentioned that we had our child dedication a couple weeks ago, and and this morning we have our our uh, uh, grad Sunday, and those kind of bookend that that process of of coming alongside families and and helping in in the discipleship uh, of of kids and, and teenagers, um, and so uh, with that in mind, uh, this passage in Ephesians gives some really practical advice, I think, for how to navigate. Uh, adulthood in a Christ-like manner. I think it's very applicable uh, for for all of us. And so, where we've been at in, in Ephesians, in the section uh, that we've been in, Paul's been explaining how the gospel should impact the way that we navigate uh, our everyday relationships. So, if you remember, he started back in in chapter five and verse twenty-one, where he said, "Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ," meaning that we're to prefer others and treat them as more important than ourselves. So, first, we saw how the the gospel shows how a marriage relationship should be radically different from the world's idea of marriage. And then a parent, the gospel shows how a child-parent relationship is supposed to be radically different from the way the world does it. And now Paul's going to explain how the gospel even makes our, our workplace relationships radically different, right? So for all of us, if we're honest, at least at certain points, sometimes we can struggle with authority, Right? I've heard, I've heard this from, from students sometimes, and before you give them too much of a hard time about it, think back to, I think all of us probably, or at least most of us probably thought something similar when we were their age too. I've heard some students say, you know, like, I, I just need to, I can't wait till I'm 18 and I can just leave home and I can, I can be on my own, right? I can't, you know, I don't have, I don't have my parents telling me what to do anymore. You know, like life's just going to be so much better and so much easier when I turn 18 and I can be out on my own, Right? Because that's how it works, right? Uh, Pastor Jonathan and I were talking about this uh, earlier this week, and he uh, mentioned a, a, a student that he had several years ago when he was a youth pastor 
and the student, you know, had had trouble uh, uh, following authority. Just did not want anybody telling him what to do. He was like, "I'm so sick of being at school and have my teachers tell me what to do. I'm sick of being at home and my parents tell me what to do. I don't want people to tell me what to do anymore. I just want to do my own thing. So when I turn 18, I'm going to go into the Marines." <laughs> Tyler Mason, is that how it works out? No. <laughs> Follow, following authority doesn't end at 18, right? Because God didn't intend it that way, right? It's not supposed to work that way, right? As a matter of fact, before we even read this passage, look at the command that the guy gives to children in verse 1, and then look at the command that he gives to servants in verse 5. It's the exact same word. It's obey. It gives them the same command. That command doesn't go away once you're beyond childhood and teenage years, right? God didn't intend for us to escape authority when we leave home. We'll always have someone in authority over us, Right? And that's actually a good thing because that's the way that God designed it, right? Our graduates are stepping into a society and a culture that tells them to, to live life as independent as possible, right? Tell them stuff like, like hey, go, go be your own authentic self. Live life by your own rules. Do life your own way. And they'll, they'll paint... This kind of they'll paint this picture of authority as though it's you know any kind of authority is just bad and and oppressive right now can authority be be used in an oppressive way yeah absolutely can authority be abused yes and we're going to see Paul address that here in a second right but that does not mean that authority in itself is an evil thing right God has actually intended for us to have healthy authority structures and the way that they remain healthy is that we do them His way. The world's telling our graduates to live by their own standards, right? But the gospel provides a better way. And that better way is to submit to God's good plan for your life instead of thinking you have a better plan than He does. And part of submitting to His good plan and submitting to His good authority, according to Paul in this passage, is to submit to the authority that He's placed over your life. Here's Paul's main point in this passage. Submission to God defines how we work with each other, whether we're leading or following. Submission to God defines how we work with each other, whether we're leading or we're following. Right? So there, there are times where, where you're going to be in authority over other people. Right? There are some times where there are going to be other people who are in authority over you. And Paul's point is that whichever role you're in, you do it God's way. Because you're ultimately serving Him above anybody else. So let's see how, how God intends for us to, to handle these authority relationships. So it's going to be ironic for me to say this, but go ahead and stand if you can. Uh, and we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. You can have a seat as I pray. Do you guys thank you for um, our graduating class? I thank you for um, your word. I pray uh, that uh, uh, what I say this morning will not be my words, but they'll be um, your words that you have uh, for us as your people. Um, I pray um, that we would uh, draw out of, out of Scripture uh, the way that we should be pursuing you better and the way that that should impact our relationships. I pray that everything that we say and do today would glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we, before we uh, get out of the gate with this passage... 
Let me quickly address something that, that sometimes bothers people with, with passages like this. And that's the idea of slaves and masters in the Bible. Okay? So the, the first word that you see in, in verse 5, is in, the, in the original uh, language, it's the word doulos. It can be translated as slave or servant or bondservant. And so when you come to a passage like this, it's, re, it's you know, really natural to raise a question here. Is Paul condoning slavery? Okay? The short answer is no. Okay? But let me, let me uh, quickly kind of explain why. Now I have... A, a ton of time to, to totally dive into into this uh, topic, but you can go and there have been pastors and scholars that have have done a lot of really thorough work uh, discussing this issue. But let me let me at least quickly touch on on this answer as we dive into this passage. First of all, when we hear the term slavery, we immediately think of American slavery in, in the American South, right? That's immediately where where our mind goes. Okay. Uh, so, and, you know, that kind of slavery was racist, it was oppressive, it was ungodly, it was, bibli- it was unbiblical, it was cruel, right? And that's not, what, that's not the same kind of slavery that we're talking about in the Roman Empire, right? Now, as, as I'll explain here in a second, Roman slavery was not all rosy and good either, right? But it's very important to note that when you're talking about Roman slavery, you're talking about a very different uh, system than American slavery, okay? So when you're talking about Roman slavery, the first thing to note is that it was not racially based, Okay? You didn't enslave people simply because you thought you were racially superior to them. Okay? That wasn't the scenario. It also, another way that was different from, from American slavery was it, was it was not always lifelong slavery. Right? In, in the States, when you were a slave, you, you were born a slave and you died a slave. Right? With very few exceptions. In Roman slavery, it was, it was, it was very common for, for people to gain their freedom. Right? It's actually estimated that a third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. Like one out of every three people is what they estimate were slaves, right? Now, why, why were there so many? Well, part, part of that is because a lot of the people that were considered slaves, you might not actually think of as being slaves, right? So some of the slave, some slave jobs included doctors, lawyers, bankers, accountants, like those kinds of jobs, right? You, like that's not what you think of when you think of a slave. But there were slaves in the Roman Empire that had those kind of roles. As a matter of fact, some slaves were actually more educated than their masters were. So it's a very different scenario. Slaves in the Roman Empire could legally own land. They could save, mo- save up their money to buy their freedom. They could uh, inherit their master's estate in some instances. As a matter of fact, there, there really wasn't like a slave class in the Roman Empire. They had different social classes. You really didn't have a slave class because you really had slaves in most every social class except for the very highest ones. There were different ways that, that you could become a slave, and some of those were, were unjust, but not all of them were, right? Some of the ways you could become a slave was you could be born into slavery if your parents were slaves. Uh, in some instances, parents sold their kids into slavery or abandoned their kids. Uh, you had captives that were taken in war, right? So you had circumstances like that, but you also had other circumstances, like somebody who had the, the inability to pay back their debts, right? So if you got into debt, this was a way where you could work and still maintain your, your, your dignity in doing work and, and work off your debt, right? When you look at slavery, it's, it was a different system, but if, when you, we don't have time to dive into it. But if you look at slavery in, in the Old Testament in, in Israel, the, it, it was very different where you had – they didn't have like a welfare system, right? Like if you got into, into financial trouble, there wasn't – like the government didn't bail you out. Right? So you had to have a way of working out of that. And what God provided was actually a way where it was like, hey, you can actually maintain your, your dignity and still continuing to work and go work for those that you owe money. And you can, you can work off your debt. And in, in, that, in the system that God set up, he actually required masters to set their slaves free after a certain point, whether they paid off their debt or not. 
So you had, you had similar, similar instances in, in the Roman Empire. You even had instances where people would voluntarily go into slavery in the Roman Empire to actually gain a better, a better situation, a better condition. Where it's actually better for them to go and work for some wealthy family and perhaps even do one of, the, one of these uh, higher-up jobs and then earn their freedom, right? So when you're talking about American slavery versus Roman slavery, just because they use the same word does not at all mean that we're talking about the same concept, Okay. Now, does that mean that Roman slavery was, was totally ideal and good? No, of course not, right? There were wrong and unjust elements of Roman slavery that eventually needed to be abolished. But that does not mean that Paul is condoning slavery, okay? When you read what, what Paul writes here, keep, keep a couple things in mind. First of all, keep in mind Paul's point and his goal. Keep in mind who he's talking to, okay? Paul's point with this passage is he's talking to Christians and he's saying, what is your responsibility as a Christian in your situation? Right? He's not, he's not addressing what society's responsibility is or what the culture's responsibility is, right? That's a different discussion for a different place, right? He's addressing, hey, for Christians, even whether you're in a good situation or whether you're in a less than ideal situation, what is your responsibility in that situation? How do you control what you can control? Right? Another example is when he writes the book of Romans, he writes it to believers. He writes it to Christians. Right? And if you remember in Romans chapter 13, he, he tells Christians, obey government authorities. And he's talking about guys like Nero. Right? Nero was, was an emperor who like, literally burned Christians and used them as street lamps in Rome. And Paul's writing to Christians, and he's saying, unless you're being asked to sin, you obey the government authority that's over you. Right? He didn't write to Nero, as far as I know, and say, hey, you need to reform your, your government policies. No, he's writing to Christians, and so he's not addressing the like, government changes that need to happen. He's saying, hey, regardless of what those are, here's your responsibility. Here's what you should be addressing, right? So keep that in mind. That that's Paul's purpose right here. Secondly, keep in mind that Paul really actually is undermining slavery indirectly right here and in other places in Scripture, right? Paul, and all of Scripture plant seeds to undermine those unjust elements of slavery, right? So even in, in, in this short passage, you see Paul addressing uh, impartiality, saying you should be impartial. He's talking about not being cruel. Earlier in, in Ephesians, he talked about submitting to one another, right? The Bible talks about being created in God's image. We could go on and on about all of these Christian principles that actually set up slavery to be undermined. So in this passage, Paul, Paul actually, he changes the dynamic of how masters and slaves relate to one another. And when he does that, he's actually providing a framework that can eventually lead to the abolition of slavery altogether, right? So there's a couple things to keep in mind when we come to, come to passages like this, okay? So now that we've touched on that, let's look at what Paul actually writes and how it applies to us, okay? So first of all, notice, notice in this passage how Paul makes Jesus the center of even your workplace relationships, right? Notice how, how often that comes up, right? He says to obey as you would Christ in verse 5. He says as bondservants of Christ in verse 6. As to the Lord in verse 7, right? There was a commentary that I uh, read earlier this week that said, no work is merely work. It is a way to serve Christ, right? And that, that's not just for like ministry jobs, right? That, that's for any, any job, Right? Any role, right? Your job is not simply a nine to five, punch the clock, get the job done, make some money kind of situation. It's a daily choice to either honor Christ with your work or to ignore him with your work. There's not the Bible doesn't give this separation between work or school in your Christian life. 
right? Your job or your school is one of the primary places to live out your Christian life, just as much as your time at church, right? As a matter of fact, you have more opportunity to live out your, your Christian life at school or at work. Then you, you spend more time there than you do at church, right? So in this passage, another thing is that you, you, see the word, you see the word master used and you see the word Lord used, right? In the original Greek language, that's actually the same word. It's the word kurios. It can be translated as either master or Lord. So when you see master or Lord in the, in the New Testament, it's the same word, okay? How does that impact this, this passage right here? Well, Paul's point is that one of the ways that you obey your heavenly master, your heavenly Lord, is by obeying earthly masters, right? We're, we're all equal under our heavenly master, but God has placed us in different authority positions over one another. And Paul's explaining how we're supposed to navigate those relationships, whether we're the one leading or we're the one following. So if you, if you obey earthly authority that God has given over you, then you're really obeying Him. Right? Again, with the caveat that you're not being asked to do something sinful. Right? Somebody asks you to disobey God, right? You're, you obey God over that, right? But when you're not, if you're not being asked to do something sinful, we submit to that authority. And by doing that, that's us obeying God. Right, it's kind of like uh, if you you know if you have if you have kids and uh, you, uh, you you know you have a kid who's who's old enough to, to look after their younger siblings and and you leave you leave an older sibling in, in charge of, of their of their younger siblings right so you tell the older one hey take care of your brother or sister right you tell the younger one hey listen to your brother or sister right so if you if you tell your kids that and then the younger one chooses to to disobey the older one who are they ultimately disobeying you. They're disobeying their parents, right? So the younger sibling obeys their parents by obeying their older sibling, right? Now, on the flip side, the older sibling obeys their parents by not abusing that authority, right? Because you give kids some authority, they can take advantage of that, right? The, so I'm the youngest in my family uh, by a lot. My, my brother is 14 years older than me. My sister is 11 years older than me. And Emily and I were both surprises in our family. Um, but uh, we, my, my sister tells a story from before I came along when, when she and my brother were, were kids. And so she was probably like five or six. She was probably like seven or eight. And uh, so he, he decided to, to take advantage of, of being the oldest, um, which he often did. Um, but he, this one day they were outside playing, and he decides it would be funny to uh, grab a knife and start chasing my sister around the yard with a knife. And as he's doing that, he's chasing her around and he's yelling at her that uh, she's adopted and our parents hired him to kill her. Yeah, so little abuse of authority and also a very, very bad picture of adoption too. Um, but he, in, a, in another instance, he, he ganged up with one of my cousins. Uh, they used to pick on one of my other cousins that was younger than them. And there was one time where they tied him to a telephone pole and put sticks around his feet and told him they were going to burn him at the stake. Yeah, I come from a lovely family. Um, so, so like that, that's obviously like abusing authority, right? So there's both, Paul addresses both sides, right? But even with that picture of, of a parent placing kids in authority over one another, right? That's kind of a similar dyna- dynamic to what, what Paul's describing here, right? First of all, placing one kid in authority over another doesn't mean that one kid is more important or valuable than the other, Right? Paul makes that clear here. He says that God doesn't show partiality, right? Authority structures don't mean that people in authority are more valuable in God's sight, right? And just as the younger sibling ultimately obeys their parents by obeying their older sibling, Paul says that we're ultimately obeying Christ when we obey those in authority. 
And on the flip side, just as an older sibling obeys their parents by not abusing their authority, Paul says that we're obeying Christ when we handle authority in a responsible way. So Paul tells us to to obey earthly authority. And then in verses 5 through 8, he gives us four ways of how we're supposed to obey that authority. Okay, so let's look at those briefly. First thing is he says, honor Christ by obeying respectfully. Honor Christ by obeying respectfully. You see that in verse 5. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, does that mean that you walk around scared of your boss all day? No, that's not what it means. Okay? It means to obey them with a respectful attitude, right? Think about this. What's your, what's your attitude towards your boss, right? Or if you're, if you're retired, fill in the blank with whatever authority, because we all have authority over us in some way, shape, or form, right? So fill in the blank with whatever authority you have over you, right? What's your attitude towards them? Do you think of them respectfully? Or do you think lowly of them? Paul's saying, listen, it's not just a matter of obeying. It's how you obey, right? Are you technically getting the job done all the while treating your boss with disrespect? Maybe not to their face, right? But how are you talking about them to your coworkers or to your family when you get home? You may think that your boss is incompetent, right? You may think that they don't respect you. You may think a lot of things. But if you notice, Paul doesn't make any of those caveats right here. You still treat them with respect. At the very least, you treat them with respect simply because of the position that God has given them in your life. Right? They're not there by accident. The authority that we have in our life has been placed there by God. Regardless of what you think of your boss or any authority figure, God himself has placed them in authority over you. And remember that when Paul uses the, the phrase fear and trembling, that, that phrase is also mentioned in the Bible several times for how we should obey God. Right? So even here, even without even using God's name in this phrase, Paul still makes the point that we obey respectfully the same way we would obey God himself. Amen. So that's the first thing. Second thing, honor Christ by obeying sincerely. Honor Christ by obeying sincerely. You see this in verses 5 and 6. It says, obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, I'm not supposed to just obey my boss so I can ultimately please my boss, right? I, I'm to obey my boss so that I can ultimately please Christ. So I'm not just doing things to get noticed. I'm not just doing things to get a pat on the back or to get the next raise. That's not sincere work, right? Sincere work is doing the right thing even when nobody but Jesus sees it. I'm not supposed to think, okay, well, how, can, how can I use this to my advantage? What am I going to get out of this job or get out of this task? I'm supposed to think, how do I glorify Jesus with this job? How do I make sure that he's pleased with my work? And you, you might be in an environment where not everybody's doing this. You might be in an environment where most, if not everybody, it does not have this mindset. Where they're working to be noticed. They're working as people pleasers, right? Someone might bypass you for a promotion because they're working as a people pleaser when you're not. But remember, God is calling us to handle these relationships in a way that is radically different from the way the world handles them. We're not called to, to keep up with the, the people-pleasing, promotion-seeking rat race. We're called to work sincerely and honestly as though we're working for Christ himself and then trust him to provide the blessings like raises or promotions or whatever. Trust him to provide that in his timing. That's number two. Number three, excuse me, honor Christ by obeying willingly. Honor Christ by obeying willingly. You see this in verse 7. He says, Obey, rendering service with a good will 
as to the Lord and not to man. So some, some translations will say with a good will. Some will, will say uh, wholeheartedly. Some will say with a good attitude. Here's the point. Think of it this way. If God himself asked you to do something, what kind of attitude or effort would you give? And Paul's point is that you should give that same attitude and effort to earthly authority. Again, with the caveat that they're not asking you to do something sinful. Paul doesn't say, hey, give that attitude or effort when you feel like it. He doesn't even say, give that attitude or effort when you agree. Because I think, I think for, for most of us, that's the easiest place to trip up right here, right? It's when we disagree with someone in authority and we can start to, we can start to justify a poor attitude. We can start to justify grumbling. We can start to justify even just flat out disobedience. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that you can't bring up disagreements in a respectful way, obviously. Right? But even if you disagree, stop for a second and ask yourself this. Am I being asked to do something sinful? If the answer is no, then I'm supposed to give the same effort and attitude that I would give God if he was asking me to do that task. Again, we're to be radically different in how we navigate the workplace or any other authority. So serve earthly masters as though you're serving God himself. And then lastly, number four, honor Christ by obeying expectantly. Honor Christ by obeying expectantly. You see this in verse eight where he says, Obey knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So Paul right here is actually giving us motivation for why we should be obeying this way. He says the motivation is that you know that one day God will repay every good thing that you do. Okay? Now, we know that our good works don't save us, right? Our good works can't get us to heaven, right? We're, we're, we're saved only because of God's grace, but not by anything that we bring to the table, right? We do good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we're saved, right? If you, if you remember, go back to, to Ephesians chapter 2. Go back a couple of chapters. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul is very clear. We are saved by grace, not by works. But then what does he say right after that? He says, you're saved so that you can serve God and do good works, right? So we're not saved by our good works, right? However, it is clear in the Bible that once we get to eternity, we'll receive rewards for our good deeds as his children, as long as they've been done in the way that we're describing right here, right? As long as they're done sincerely, respectfully for God's glory and not our own. It's a biblical truth that we will be rewarded for those things. Now, what exactly that looks like? I have no idea. Okay. But God clearly gives us eternal motivation for serving him faithfully as his children. So if you don't get the promotion, if you don't, if you don't get the raise, that's fine. God says you're going to get an eternal raise. I'd rather have that anyway. Paul literally says in this verse that for every single time that we sincerely, respectfully, willingly obey earthly authority as a way of obeying Christ, every single time that we do that, we're going to be reimbursed by God in eternity and then some. Think about, think about like if, if your boss tells you to go and, and purchase something for work, right? So let's, let's say he, he asks you to go and purchase $1,000 worth of supplies, right? But he doesn't send the company credit card with you. And you bring the receipts back and he doesn't reimburse you for it, right? Make you a little upset, right? Feel a little shortchanged. Sometimes I think that we slip into thinking that that's how we're obeying God. Sometimes we can, we can slip into thinking that we're, that we're, in walking in obedience, we're being shortchanged. Like we're, like we're missing out on something and having to give all this effort that nobody's seeing. And we're getting very little in return. But God says that we'll receive rewards back for every single good deed that we do sincerely in his service. And Paul also adds that, that this applies 
whether you're a bondservant or free, is what he says, right? In other words, your earthly situation cannot impact your eternal reward, and it can't compare to your eternal reward. Listen, there's sometimes where we're going to be treated unfairly in this life, right? Sometimes we're treated unfairly. We're going to get the short end of the stick sometimes, but that is not lost on a just God. Amen. He's promised to make all things right, regardless of what happens here and now. So we trust him, trust him in that and trust that he, he performs ultimate justice, right? Paul then finishes up in, in verse 9 by, by addressing masters, right? Or, or addressing people who are in authority, right? So when you're the one in authority, how are you supposed to act, okay? First Paul says this. He says, do the same to them. Which seems like kind of a weird phrase to start off with, right? What is he, what is he talking about? Well, I think what Paul is saying is he's saying treat your servants or treat your employees, your subordinates, anybody under your authority... Treat them in the same four ways that I just told them to treat you. So the same things that he said to servants, he's saying, hey, those same attitudes should be the way you're treating them, right? Respectfully, sincerely, willingly, expectantly, right? So you, you lead respectfully, right? Don't disrespect those under your authority. You lead sincerely, right? You treat them with honesty and sincerity, right? You do the right thing the right way at all times. You don't take advantage of them, Right? You lead willingly, right? In other words, remember what we talked about with doing it the right, with the right attitude, right? Lead with the right attitude as though you're serving Christ himself. And lead expectantly. Lead knowing that when you lead humbly like Christ, that will be rewarded in eternity as well. So Paul says that, and then he says this. He says, stop your threatening. Now, why, that seems like a very specific thing to, to mention. Why does Paul throw that in here? Well, think about leading in a threatening way, right? Threatening... Is a way of abusing your authority, right? So even even if you're you're like, well, I'm not threatening anybody at work. Are you are you abusing your authority, right? Because that that's really showing partiality towards yourself, right? Because look at what Paul says next. He says he says your heavenly master shows no partiality or favoritism. And when we abuse our authority, we're not only refusing to lead like Christ, we're being selfish and we're showing favoritism to ourselves. Paul's saying, don't, don't abuse your authority for your own gain. And Paul gives another motivation too. He says, when you're in authority, remember that God is the ultimate master over all of us. Right? So even if I'm in authority, I only answer to God for how I handle that authority. So overall, over the course of this passage, whether we're leading or whether we're following, we're to lead and follow. We're to navigate our workplace relationships. We're to navigate our authority relationships. As though we're serving Christ himself. Because we are serving Christ himself. The way that we handle, just like with, with all the other relationships, the way that we handle these kinds of relationships should be radically different from how the world handles them. And it should be a picture to the world that we're submitting to our heavenly master. We should, we should handle our workplace situations in a way where people notice Jesus, not us. That should be our attitude. When we're talking about, about this... The issue is not your workplace. That's not the core of the issue. The, the issue is, what's my attitude towards Jesus? Because the way that I, that I handle myself in my workplace or with, with somebody in authority over me, that's really a reflection of what my, what my heart attitude is towards Jesus. That's what we need to reflect on. So as we wrap up, let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and reflect on how well we're serving Christ in this area. Because I think we, we need a new elevated sense of our responsibility in our workplaces and in our schools. 
I think we need to move beyond the the nine to five attitude. And remember that regardless of what our job is, when we clock in for that job, we're stepping into an opportunity to serve Christ. Think about the, the different authorities that God has placed in your life for a second. And there's several of them, right? He's placed you under the authority in your workplace. He's placed you under government authority. He's placed you under authority in your church. How are you responding to that authority in your life? Are you responding to it the same way that you would respond to God himself? Because that's the command that Paul gives us here in Ephesians. Some of you not only have authority over you, but you might be an authority over others. Again, this could be in the workplace, could be in the church, could be in your family. Are you handling that authority in a way that honors Christ? Or in a way that advances your own agenda and desires? If you're a Christian, honestly evaluate how well you're obeying Christ in those areas. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never truly given your life to Christ, right? So you can't truly honor Christ in these areas. If you've never done that, don't leave without talking to somebody today. Believe that Jesus is not only the way, but that he's a better way. Let's reflect on how we can be more like Christ in these areas. Let's stand and respond in worship.